0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario's health minister is not ruling out privatization in health care as the government looks at ways to try to deal with the major staff shortages that are straining hospitals in the province. Lou Molinaro, instructor at the Harris Institute for Music, will join us to remember local legend and his good friend Gord Lewis of Teenage Head. And social media users are deliberately attempting to silence journalists and other messages of hate, which are becoming pretty commonplace on social media these days. What are we going to do about it? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get into, well, the crisis that we've talked about. And I know that every time we say there's a health care crisis in this province, both the Premier and the Minister of Health kind of cringe because they say, no, 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 we're not in a crisis. Well, walk into an ER if they're open, and and, and you'll see for yourself. But uh, with the word we got yesterday, Ontario's health minister is not ruling out privatization in Ontario health care as the government looks at ways to try to deal with major staff shortages that are straining the hospitals. This is what the Minister had to say.
1: I'm saying that all options are on the table, I'm saying that there is innovation and opportunities here in Ontario and we will explore those.
0: Well, as soon as you mention privatization and healthcare in the same sentence, there are a lot of people cringe and say no, we don't want to go there. Uh, are we going to? Are we going to have to? And uh, what are the implications? We'll talk about that with our next guest. Uh, Clement Nokos is uh, Director of Policy with the Broadbent Institute. Uh, Clement, thank you for the time. Glad to have you have me on the program today.
1: Oh, thank you for having me on the program, Bill.
0: We've got a crisis. We know that there's a crisis here. Uh, we can talk about how this happened. I mean, um, you've, you've got to understand the roots, I guess, of the situation. Uh, but every time we seem to get into a situation like this, uh, there's always going to be somebody in government that says, well, let's privatize. It's more efficient. It's going to cost less money. Uh, Should we be concerned if the minister is saying that that, an option like that is on the table?
1: Yeah, this is all really a mess of Doug Ford's own doing, this whole push for privatization. You know, it's been the MO of the Ford administration since being elected. It's not just a a COVID-19 pandemic issue that suddenly sprung up. This has been in the works for a number of years to to pressure and strangle public health care to so he can go to uh, Ontario voters and say, look, the private sector can fill in the gaps without mentioning, you know, the extraordinary costs, the profits that come out of Ontarians' pockets. You know, it, it's it, what you're saying is right. We need to look at the root of the issue uh, to understand sort of the the problem we see today in ERs. And, and most
0: of us, let's face it, we don't pay much attention to this. And I'm not suggesting we don't care about health care. We certainly do. Uh, but we don't pay attention to what's going on in the hospital, in the in the the setting, or in the ER, unless we need to access it, or some of our loved ones need to access it. Then we get you know right in our face, we see what's going on. So it, there's a, there's a certain, I guess, ease for the government to kind of move in and manipulate this a little bit, because for the most part, we're not watching.
1: Exactly, and, and this is this is exactly the play to you know uh, for for Doug Ford's administration to show that uh, look, we have. the the voters just elected us for for a second mandate and uh you know in that mandate uh it's a bit of a bait and switch where he's promising you know more investment in healthcare, but that's going to you know things like uh uh hospital beds um more infrastructure but what about the staff to uh staff those beds you know you don't want to just you can have hallway medicine you can have um you can you know put people in rooms but if there's no nurses or doctors to attend to those folks then um you know that to me doesn't sound like a real investment instead that kind of sounds like a crisis that this government is investing in
0: many many years ago when i was on hamilton city council i was also on the district health council which has morphed into all sorts of other things but it's a community organist, and, and it was great and uh, this was during the days of the harris government and I, I remember one meeting in particular, and they, they said, you know, we got great news. The f- government's just given us funding for a brand new MRI. It's going to go into Hamilton General Hospital. <laughs> and this is great. Yeah. And I put my hand up and I said, well, what about funding for the people? Who are gonna, oh, there's no, 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 we don't have staffing for it. <laughs> so it's going to sit there. I mean, there's, we haven't got any money to pay people to actually work this thing. Now, we worked it out, of course. It was up to the, you know, Hamilton Health Sciences to do this. But you can't do any of this stuff. And you know this, Clement, from your work, of course. You can't do any of this stuff unless you have staffing. And, and they so, don't seem to want to talk about that. You know, yeah, we're going to bring more foreign trained nurses in. Well, that's not going to happen overnight. But we're not going to pay the ones that we have, by the way. And that, that's, that's somewhat problematic. But they don't seem to want to address that problem. I find that frustrating.
1: No, absolutely. That's, you know, Doug Ford's Bill 124 uh, to cap salaries for nurses. And look, these are nurses. These are our frontline workers that, you know, at the start of the pandemic, we've been, Doug Ford's government, everyone was clapping for them. Um, But, you know, to go two plus years later and to, you know, work them in these 12 hour overnight shifts, while with the cost of inflation, they're not able to afford their groceries. To me, that's totally disrespectful for you know the leadership they showed us uh, throughout this whole like global health crisis um, you know it, it's no wonder why many you know feel the need to drop out find work in other places I know nurses myself it, I come from a newcomer community where you know people are thinking about uh, getting nurses uh, fast-tracked because they're not you know credentialed or you know they aren't um, being uh, recognized or they don't have the status. To, to shift into healthcare work like I think that's a, an admirable way to go. But at the root of the problem has always been um, the workforce we currently have. If those workers aren't being respected after, you know, doing what they've done for the past two years, then, you know, what's also to say that the new people you hire on today are going to stick around two years later when you still treat them with disrespect.
0: Well, the statistic that jumped out of me, and I know you've seen this, uh, you, you're a numbers guy, you've got a background in economics. <laughs> you know, the, one, the, the survey that was released among nurses, they, they talked about Ontario nurses here, they're working full-time. One in two, in other words, 50% of them said they're seriously considering leaving the profession, and many already have. Now, if that's not a crisis, I don't know what is.
1: No, I, I know personally nurses, um, you know, <clears throat> they were there the first months of the pandemic, Saw the poor working conditions, saw ERs fill up, saw, you know, the government not come out to bat for them. And now they're working in Amazon warehouses. You know, it's a total. They have this, you know, all this health experience, all of this education but then they try to find lower wage work somewhere else that isn't, you know, maybe as stressful as as an ER. To me, that's a that's a big loss, not just for, uh, you know, for for themselves for their incomes, but for for the community, for the communities that they uh, that they serve uh, in the healthcare sector. If we don't have nurses, then we don't have a healthcare system.
0: And, and this is the staffing thing that, that's always bothered me. And by the way, when we talk about the healthcare system, I know in most people's minds, eye, I guess they th- they think about primary care, in other words, hospitals, as, and they should. And and the picture that you painted just a few minutes ago, I think is something that we have to remind ourselves about, of, of those people that were lined up on the street and banging pots and pans and applauding nurses as they came out of their shifts, usually after a double shift or more in situations like that. Uh, and yet we not, we're not, petitioning this government to say these people should be paid a decent wage why can you put a ceiling on something like this one percentage you know i can understand why so many people are getting frustrated and say we have to move but it's not just the hospitals though clement you know that uh long-term care facilities they said they were going to do something about that uh and that's still two or three years down the road we're getting promises about this should be fixed three or four years from now what about the people that are in that bed right now what, what are we doing for them
1: Absolutely. And this, this is sort of what the government is proposing. The, the, three, the reason why it's three years is because they're looking to build more facilities. Well, again, there's nobody to staff those facilities. Um, and so, you know, what the government needs to do now really is to get rid of Bill 124, make sure that our nurses that are working today are able to do their jobs and, you know, pay for their groceries, pay for the price of gas, you know, and it, if, and being overworked means that there's still a shortage Well, that also means at the same time, fast tracking that workforce that we currently have in Canada that doesn't have their status recognized, that doesn't have their credentials and experience. It's all in English. All of these nurses that come with international training learn in English, but they still have to go through these prohibitive tests uh, that cost so much money and are only available so many times a year. Uh, if I were coming with that experience, but you know, I still have to jump through all these hoops. You know, um, you know, I have to trade my shifts at Timmy's to be able to get to you know do an English test, even though I'm serving customers in English already. Like that's just discouraging. And so, if we want to ensure that our healthcare system is fully staffed, these barriers need to be removed. These, uh, you know cuts really to wages need to be removed. Um, Doug Ford needs to take action now if he wants to save people today.
0: But there's going to be an argument, and I I know you've heard this, we certainly have over the years too, that look, why not a hybrid? Why not some private facilities? You know, if it's going to take uh, seven months for you to wait before you get a hip replacement or something, why can't you go to a private clinic and and get it done there? Uh, What's the argument against something like that?
1: Well, I mean, we just have to look south of the border, you know, if, uh, you know, and we already see it today with Doug Ford privatizing things like blood tests and x-rays and, you know, regular routine procedures. This is where, you know, the private sector sees an opportunity to uh, form a beachhead to be able to, and and Doug Ford can see an opportunity here to cut corners. You're going to see more things like U.S. style crowdsourcing for funds to pay for these routine things if you uh, start to think about having a hybrid system incorporated into our OHIP, you know, like ER closures are obviously devastating today and they may be proposing privatization as sort of today's solution, but it's not a solution. And in the long run, it's just going to cost taxpayers more money for uh, the money they've already paid, but now it's not coming from their taxes. It's coming out of their savings accounts.
0: And I know that some people are suggesting, well, why can't you just go to a private clinic and and let OHIP pay for that? Uh, which sounds like a, a nice pie in the sky idea, but I don't think it's pragmatic and practical. I mean, by definition, uh, private sector are profit driven. I mean, there's got have there's gonna have to be a profit in there someplace, isn't there?
1: This is exactly it. And so what you instead see is a situation where you have the government subsidizing corporate profits. They're not subsidizing your health. They're not they're not, you know, helping Ontarians, what they're doing is lining the pockets of shareholders in this case. And so what you're going to see with a hybrid system is more corporate profiteering. And we're already sick and tired of that. When it comes to the gas price, when it comes to groceries, you know, can, uh, Ontarians already see the effects of what it is in other sectors to put it in their uh, into the health aspects of the economy. It just puts more pressure on Ontarians for, you know, less return on our investments.
0: Well, and listen, I'm, I don't have a problem with profit. I mean, people, you know, if that's their profession, they want to make a profit at it. God bless them and let them do that. Uh, but I, I think we've developed a mindset in, in this country, not just here in Ontario, I would think, Clement, uh, that there are some things that are sacrosanct, education and healthcare being probably at the top of that list, uh, that, you know, that's, that's not a place for that. I mean, if there's a clinic that, you know, you can go to, God bless you. But I mean, the system is supposed to be there for all of us. That's what the, the, the system is right now. And it's not serving us now. And, and you know, this is why we get into the argument of, well, how much money is the province putting in? How much money is the government putting in? But the work that guys like you do, I think, is so important in that discussion. Uh, you know, as, as the health minister yesterday says, everything's on the table. We may have to privatize some things. Uh, and you juxtapose that with the report that came out about two weeks ago uh, from the budget officer that basically said, look, at Ontario has the worst record in Canada on sp- health, spending health. The, the dollars that do come to them they don't seem to spend wisely and and you know when the, the health minister and the premier were presented with that report they simply said well that's not true just dismiss it out of hand but the numbers are the numbers and as, as long as we've got that kind of a mindset it, is there a chance that we're going to find some common ground here and some solutions
1: yeah they can you know dismiss the truth all that they want but you know the fact of the matter is people are suffering today and you know what we can do to maybe change that mindset is to tell folks on the ground like look um you know this is something we need to fight for healthcare is something that was first of all fought for in saskatchewan under Tommy douglas's uh, ndp government and you know what kind of got lost over those past decades is that you know these things that we kind of take for granted we need to continue to fight for and not just fight for it for like the status quo. We already know that the status quo kind of, you know, isn't helping everyday people, especially when it comes to global health crises. So what we need to do instead is to reinforce and expand our healthcare system to make sure that, you know, we do have all of the coverage that people need every day. And that turns into preventative things like, you know, dental care, mental health care. These things aren't so universally covered by OHIP, unlike other uh, procedures and routine uh, health needs, but these are also things that will prevent things like a ER crush, or it'll it'll help prevent a lot of kids that need to go to the emergency room because their parents can't afford to bring them to the dentist. You know, it, it's these sorts of things that do have real return on investment, and I think if you show Ontarians that these are the these are the real alternatives that we can have, that they're cost effective, that they do provide us with a return on investment. If, if we're thinking about profits and stuff like that, what about the, the the profits for the public good? What about, you know, making sure that the public good gets a return on the investment that we have in our healthcare system? So I think changing that conversation to be like, you know, individual corporate profits are good or bad or whatever. Uh, what about, Profits for the public good. Why don't we make sure that we invest in people instead of the uh, profits or the pockets of shareholders?
0: It's a majority government. Uh, I, I got, what, 30 seconds left here. Are you confident that we're going to have a debate about this, uh, that, that, that there's going to be an open discussion about the pros and cons of this before we go down that road, if we're going down that road?
1: Sure, it's a majority government, but you know, there are folks out in front of Queen's Park all the time um, showing people what an alternative looks like. I I think this is sort of the opportunity for Ontarians to come together, to voice their opposition, to push back on Doug Ford's Bill one Two Four, to push back on all these efforts to privatize healthcare. It's it's critical. I think it's important. It affects people's everyday bottom lines, every day's at people's everyday health. And with that at stake, I, I, I think we'll see something like a popular movement against these cuts.
0: Well, as we've talked about on this program before, there are other people globally that do it better than us. The UK system, uh, the, all three Scandinavian countries, Holland, uh, for, you know, open our eyes and, and let's watch and learn what they're doing. Clement, really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for
1: this. Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Clement Delcos, uh, Director of Policy for the Broadband Institute. And uh, uh, the discussion and the debate is coming because we've got to do something. Clearly, the status quo is just not working when it comes to health care and shutting down ERs. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tributes, uh, both personal and professional, continue uh, after the tragic announcement, of course, of of the death of uh, Gord Lewis earlier this week, uh, Hamilton's old Gord Lewis. Uh, Among those uh, paying tribute, of course, uh, is, uh, well, Alan Cross, of course, who is the host of the ongoing history of new music. And Alan says that, uh, that Gord should be considered a pioneer and a visionary.
1: I mean, this is a band that was formed across the street from you at westdale high school in in 1975 and that was before the Sex pistols that was before the clash that was before you know punk was even really a thing and uh you know this this hamilton band was was right there at the forefront uh
0: and and historical in so many different ways and uh, it's, it's such a tragic tragic loss on so many different levels uh to talk about that and uh, talk about the man and we need to do that as well talk about Gord lewis Uh, So pleased to welcome uh, one of his good friends, uh, Lou Molinaro. Lou, of course, is an instructor at the Harris Institute of Music. And uh, at one time, actually, a band member with Gordy in in, uh, another one of the great bands from uh, Tung Fu that we'll talk about in a second. Uh, Lou, first of all, thanks for joining us today. And the first question here is, how are you doing? I mean, you've just gone through a medical procedure, and uh, I've had a couple of joint replacements myself. It's it's, uh, not a picnic. Are you doing all right? I'm doing okay bill uh, i my my
2: surgery was successful at getting my hip replaced, but before they were uh, going to do the surgery, uh they spiked my spine accidentally and damaged a bunch of uh, my nerves and my good legs, so mobility right now is kind of questionable, but I'm hanging in.
0: Hang in there, okay, well, thoughts and prayers i I know it's a cliche, but you know we're thinking about you anyway, Lou. Uh, and do the rehab when you get out okay uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, just some good advice from one friend to another who's gone through there. One time I did, and one, the first time I didn't. The second time I did. So you'll learn, and it'll help. But anyway, uh, you'll be on the road to recovery. There's always great people helping you. Let's talk about uh, about Gord Lewis, and let's talk about uh, you know the, the incredible career. Because uh, the, there's Gord Lewis, the musician. There's Gord Lewis, the teacher. Uh, there's Gord Lewis, the 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 citizen of Hamilton. Uh, and, uh, so many different stories about this guy, Lou. He was a diplomat. He was uh, the perfect representation of the
2: city. Gord had a a gritty attitude. Uh, It was definitely displayed in his music. Um, As Alan Cross said, he was a visionary, and he was an architecture uh, working on this thing called Teenage Head. Uh, A lot of us see it as a band, but it's more than a band. It was uh, an art statement.
0: You know, and, and and Alan mentioned this, and you and I have talked about this in the past. I talked to Gord about this on, on one occasion, too. What if? And I, I, I know we all do that in our lives. What if? Uh, but you mentioned, and, and as Alan just mentioned, even before the Sex Pistols became big, uh, there was Teenage Head. Uh, there was a trip planned to New York, which could have changed music, could have changed everything. And, and sadly, it didn't happen. Gord got in an accident, and, and things got delayed. Uh, did Gord ever talk about what if? They know that could have been us. That could have been... You know that that could have been their their platform to to go international in a bigger way. One of the luxuries of being close to Gord was uh, talking about the what ifs a lot in
2: different circumstances. But that was the big one, and I know it really upsets him. And I know Gord is a, a man full of pride, and it, you know he always feels guilty because he felt that that was something that just kind of let the the team down, but. What if is right, um, just because Teenage Head at that particular point were the hottest band in Canada, uh, their attitude, their image, uh, they were just outstanding in their own field that if America caught on to the fever and uh, just basically did what, what they normally do in promoting music, Teenage Head would have been huge, and we all know that. The music uh, is radio-friendly, the attitude, the look, everything was just uh, perfect,
0: and you know we're not going to go to the extent and say, well, the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and everything, they they come you know they they copied Teenage Head, but they they were pioneers in that genre, weren't they? They were definitely
2: pioneers. And the one thing that you have to remember were was that the influences that became the foundation of Teenage Head were varied. So you had uh, bands like Hawkwind, which were a space rock band, the MC Five, the Stooges, Mott the Hoople, David Bowie. There's a lot of influential bands where um, you know, when you look at uh, a lot of the other punk bands, they share the same, uh, you know, likes in in terms of what they found influential. However, I think uh, Gord's uh, foundation, which he spread to the band as well, was a lot more diversified, which really, uh, you know, lent a, a diverse sound to the to the sound of teenage heads.
0: Where did this come from? I mean, in his head, as as Alan mentioned in his piece, and, and I know you've talked about this in the past, I mean, these are guys from Westdale Secondary School at Maine and Longwood. Uh, a lot of great people in just about every endeavor of life, by the way, have graduated from Westdale, and their wall of honor there is is just like, wow. Uh, but, the, you know, and there's lots of guys pl- to pick up guitars back in those days and say, yeah, I'm going to be a musician. Uh, but he had a different tact. He wasn't just going to follow it and... and you know, and to play cover versions of top 40 hits. So he, he wanted to go a different path, didn't he?
2: One of the luxuries about being a close friend, and like I was not there right at the very beginning when Teenage Had started, but uh, being a fan, I just had the opportunity of just talking to Gord a lot about those early days and trying to learn from them just to kind of get a feel of what it was like. But um, I remember Gord saying to me that watching the monkeys. And hearing the music of the monkeys was very influential. He wanted to be in a band where girls chased uh, these <laughs> rock and roll boys. Uh, he, he wanted to be a rock star. Uh, what a lot of people don't know, and this is something else that I learned about Gord, was he was being scouted in hockey when he was younger to be a goalie. And he traded in the uh, hockey equipment for a Gibson guitar. And boom, that was, uh, that was it.
0: Wow. What a choice. Uh, incredible. And a typical Canadian story, I guess, Yeah. Uh, as a result of that. Uh, but, but to have that in your head and have these guys and, and, you know, we all hear stories about, you know, guys that pick up in high school and some of them, you know, go on to great fame. Uh, but such a, a, a unique group. Uh, and I actually got to know Gord. I mean, I knew of him. Uh, but, uh, 2009, uh, we were both uh, inducted into the Mohawk college uh, gallery of distinction and, 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 that was the first time I actually had a chance to sit down and talk with them because when you do that, as, as you know, you know, all the eight or nine of us that were being inducted, you know, it's the photo shoot and was, you know, you're sitting, yeah. it's, it's standing and waiting for a lot of stuff. So we got talking about this and the other thing. And, I, and I've talked to other people that have talked about their meetings with Gord, even the first time. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this, too, because you were an Oshawa guy that came to Hamilton and, and, and saw these guys. He's such a humble guy. I mean you, you might have this picture in your head of what a, a rock star, especially a, a band like Teenage had what these guys would be like uh, but he's such a down-to-earth humble guy I mean he was he, he wore it well I, I clearly he had confidence in his own abilities as he should have in a situation like that uh, but he was he was just this this guy that just said, yeah, this is what I do and I', I'm, and I he didn't boast about it. Uh, he he didn't come across as, as one of these brash guys that were going to tear up a hotel room, which you expected, you know, out of Jill Walsh and things like that. Right.
2: No, uh, Gord was a very humble, sweet guy. And when I first started being introduced to the music of Teenage Head, I was a teenager in Oshawa, and uh, it was the sound of the guitar that really stood out. And that was something that really attracted me to the music of Teenage Head. And then once you listen to it a little bit more closely, you realize how great of a singer Frankie is or was. Um, but it was always the sound of the guitar and the, I don't know how many shows I've seen of teenage head. Most of the shows I was always in front of uh, Gord watching him. It was almost kind of like a spiritual thing for me. You know, when you see teenage head, uh, you stand in front of Gord and watch Gordy play guitar. It was his tone. And you know, so many people have always uh, Talked to Gord uh, about how influential that sound was. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story. At The St. Hollywood, we had a band called Imperial State Electric, um, and one of the gentlemen in that band was in a, a, a previous Swedish band called The Helicopters. They came out to uh, play at The St. Hollywood, and when Nikkei, the lead singer and uh, guitar player of this band, saw our teenage head poster that belonged to my business partner, Glenn, hanging on the wall, He said, oh, that's cool that you guys have a a teenage head poster. Uh, We're big fans. We are almost going to play the first album because we know they're from Toronto. And I said, wait a minute. They're from Hamilton. And the guitar player is going to be here tonight. So when uh, Nikkei met him, he was just freaking out. He was so excited because he couldn't believe the opportunity of meeting Gordy. And here's a band very prominent from Sweden. So um, even during that whole... Um, pageantry. Gordy was just so humble in saying thank you. That's very nice. Uh, I'm glad that you know we inspired you, and I'm glad you're a fan of the band. Other than you know just kind of saying, well, yes, you should be a fan of the band. We're great. He he really he really loved making people happy.
0: Is, is this all chronicled? I mean, you know the story. A lot of people in this community know the story. Uh, I'll go back uh, again to that uh, his uh, acceptance speech when he was inducted into the Mohawk College uh, Gallery distinction. Yes. His acceptance speech was was a ride through history. I mean, it was so funny, so pointed. Uh, he, he was a great storyteller. I mean, he talked about some of the stuff he and Frankie used to do. He, he almost didn't graduate, he says, because they were partying in Toronto and they had yeah. to be back at school on Monday. And, and right. he says, I made it back. Frankie never did. He says, <laughs> <laughs> "He just more to be had here. And he says, but it was a, a, such a fabulous sense of humor. Kind of low-key, but a really good sense of humor. He was a great storyteller, wasn't he?
2: Great storyteller and um, a very funny guy. So he watched a lot of, another thing that we used to talk quite a bit about were the Honeymooners and the Flintstones. <laughs> we were both big fans of those. And I think some, that's some, what really became paramount in shaping Gord's uh, humor and, and his personality.
0: And and what he did with it, I mean, you know, as you say, as a musician, uh, teenage had, you know, had their time in the, back in the 80s. Uh, I guess it, it, you can't talk about teenage head without what happened. Of course, on Ontario place back in 1980. Uh, but that's what happened. And like, like Gordy said, he said, that's punk rock. That's rock and roll, man. That's you know, that's the stuff. So, no, you don't want to see it happen all the time, but it happens sometimes. Uh, there's passion. There's a lot of crazy things going on. And, uh, there, and the music kind of takes people. You were there that night.
2: I was there. It was a Monday night. It was Frank's birthday. Uh, me and a couple of friends from Oshawa, uh, in advance, knew that we were going to skip school that day. We were going to go see Teenage shed We had no idea that the riot was going to happen, but that prevented us from catching the last GO train back to Oshawa. So we had to stay <laughs> overnight at Union Station to grab the first train to go back. I was going to call my mom and dad cluck, but I thought, like, why get in trouble twice? So <laughs> I just figured once I got home and, Sure enough, my mom always used to listen to the radio every morning, so she knew about the uh, Ontario Place riot, and she knew that me and a couple of my buddies went to that. But yeah, that was outstanding, and that's what really kind of cemented the deal for me um, because I thought, okay, there's something about this band. Um, it, it, and when I personally look back at my you know history with Teenage Head, that it started there. That was my first time seeing Teenage Head at that Ontario Place riot, and fast forward a bunch of years later. We talk about baseball and George Steinbrenner not letting guys have uh, facial hair on the team. It's just uh, you know, it's been quite a journey, and I'm personally sad that it's ended.
0: And and he hung around. I mean, he was he he was a Hamilton guy, uh, and and, you know, matter of fact, he taught my nephew guitar at at, uh, the place down on Lock Street, of course, sticks and picks, and. and, uh, And, and Dan learned, and as a matter of fact, Dan's a musician now in Ottawa and that's it. That's his career and doing wonderful. And he's got, he's got Gordy to thank, I'm sure for the, some of the chops and, and some of the things that he's learned in, in that lesson. But he, he, but he, he did that. I mean, he was great at his craft and he, I, I got the sense when I talked to him, what he really enjoyed actually imparting that, that information to others that wanted to, to play the instruments as well.
2: He felt very proud about that, especially when uh, students uh, recognized Gordy for who he was Um And, you know, when they're asking him questions and or they're saying that they were influenced by certain bands. And Gordy was always um, willing to learn about other bands that uh, these students wanted to uh, learn songs from. And so he was just a a very objective teacher.
0: Uh, So so many great stories. How do we maintain the legacy, Lou?
2: Well, I've been thinking about this all week. Um, I think the legacy will continue on its own. How can you forget teenage ed? You don't. Uh-huh. Uh, but I do believe that recognition um, is, is important uh, because I think as people, we seem to validate legacy once uh, we see things that hang in the streets or a plaque or something. I know that's just in certain people's eyes very artificial, but there's a recognition that city, the city of Hamilton does have to lend to Teenage Shed. But I think it's also the industry and the infrastructure itself, uh, their music. Should always be played, and I, I think all of us have these stories of teenage shed and personal moments of joy as to why we love this band and I think those are the things that should never be forgotten it 's a tough one i I know i 'll never stop playing my teenage shed records, and i haven't had well even when i 'm here in the hospital, I still haven 't had the courage to put on any teenage shed because. I know it's just going to be a very, very sad moment. I, uh, I'm, you know, I, I, I just need to be in a different headspace to hear teenage you said before, oh boy. I, I'm looking forward to hearing it when I, when I'm ready.
0: Well, it's and of course the ending and the tragic ending and it's just you know gone too soon and it's such a horrible way uh, to end such a brilliant life, not just a brilliant career. We know about the music in Hamilton. I know we're almost out of time here. But, the, you know, uh, the guys like yourself and, and Tim Potosick and others that are, are, are still doing this, and you talk to even the late Gord Downey and others that said, you know, Hamilton is the place. Well, that's that's where a lot of these great Canadian artists were born and, and where they actually learned their craft. And and we got to hold on to that. And if you're going to do that, it's essential that you, you identify and recognize the pioneers who who laid the foundation for everybody who's come forward since then, don't we?
2: I completely agree. And and one thing you have to remember is Hamilton, for the most part, was primarily just a blues rock town until Teenage Head started in the mid 70s. And they shaped it up and they opened doors for other bands like the Forgotten Rebels and the myriad of other punk rock bands that uh, um, came later because Teenage Head opened those doors and also let everyone know that you could, you know, you could be strong and confident and do it just like uh, those guys did.
0: Lou, uh, I, I know the the cliche seems a little trite right now, but uh, never to be forgotten. Just a wonderful man and a, a great musician, uh, Gordon Lewis. Thanks for sharing uh, some thoughts and some memories with us. Uh, get well soon, would you please? And uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay?
2: Yeah. Thank you so much. It really meant a lot to me to uh, to speak to you this morning, Bill.
0: Take care, Lou. Thank Lou Mollenar, of course, from um, the Harris School of Music, and a, and a dear friend of uh, the Gordon Lewis.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We've talked about uh, the composition and, and, and the content of online uh, platforms for the longest time. And, and there's been discussion about that at government levels, of course. Uh, Senate committees, congressional committees in the states, parliamentary committees on this side of the border uh, trying to regulate it. And there's always going to be pushback on this. But, I mean, the reality is is there's some damaging information. Uh, that is uh, coming out on on a number of different social media platforms. Uh, Hate language, of course, uh, sometimes death threats. And and the target lately uh, seems to be female journalists. There's an awful lot of that that's going on right now. And uh, journalists, of course, are being concerned about this. They've reported it to police uh, with varying measures of success. Uh, But it leads to the overriding question, of course, is what responsibility do the platforms and the media have in general? Uh, to police themselves and and to to make sure that these sorts of things don't happen, I want to bring our next guest into the conversation to uh, to talk about how this might be uh, happening, and uh, it's it's a, a a real problem that we've seen, and I know that I've talked to a number of colleagues in my profession, uh, female colleagues, uh, racialized uh, people that are very concerned about what they're seeing, what they're hearing. Do you simply dismiss them? Do you do you report them? Do you think that you know this is a legitimate threat against you? Uh, they don't know where to turn and how to to interpret this. Uh, Jeffrey Devorkin is a senior fellow at Massey College. He's also the author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Uh, Jeff, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Uh, we, we've talked about this, about you know regulating, and I guess that's a, a, a word open to interpretation, but the, the content of what goes on online, uh, there's so many different elements to this, hate speech, uh, some of these threats that we've talked about, But the pushback is always, well, look, this is free speech. And as a matter of fact, it probably came to light again with uh, the recent attempt by Elon Musk to try to purchase Twitter, where he basically said, I'm going to take all the guardrails off, and you can do whatever you want on there, Uh, which is, I don't think, the way most of us want to go, is it?
3: I don't think so either, and I think it's getting worse. Uh, The recent events in the States have made uh, reporting from outside the news bubble, the newsroom, much more dangerous. And there's a couple of examples. There's a young woman, very talented reporter, works for Vice News. She's Canadian. Her name is Tess Owen. And uh, her parents are actually people I worked with at CBC back in the day. And she went to a rally or a conference of conservative people in Texas and tried to interview them. And she was harassed and threatened. She was wearing a mask. They went after her for that. And Vice Media has put it up on its website. And it is, you know, I I don't think I can be much shocked anymore, but boy, oh, boy, this is really something. Tess Owen is a very tough uh, young journalist, and she comes from good stock of journalists. Her dad was my boss at the National at CBC back in the 80s, and her mother is uh, a wonderful reporter, uh, Sheila McVicker, who people may oh, have sure, seen yeah. back in the day, yeah. um, and Tess has, Tess has got a lot of a lot of guts to do this. But it's not just in the states; we're seeing this happening now in Canada. Glenn McGregor, who reports for CTV News, uh, cannot do a piece on the uh, followers of the convoy without people coming up and shoving him and pushing him and attacking him physically um and he's a big guy um so it's really quite disconcerting and and part of the and we're not immune from this here i think there's there's an increased level of weirdness just plain old craziness out there right now that has been exacerbated by the digital culture and we have to figure out a way to do something with this
0: well and to your point uh, i mean even when the convoy finally did land in ottawa and and set up camp there uh, Evan Sullivan from CTV was there, and Evan's a big guy. He's a bigger guy than Glenn, uh, and and he was was being harassed uh, by people in that situation. And I, I guess the question here and the concern here, Jeff, because both male and female, uh, how do you respond to that? I mean, you know, is are they just you know trying to threaten you? Is there a real concern here about uh, imminent violence? You don't know, do you, when you're in that moment? Well, here's here's
3: the thing: is that when we would send a reporter into a danger zone or a war zone. We made sure that the reporter was sufficiently, frankly, guarded uh, by local fixers, by uh, uh, big people, (laughs) physically big people. But also in a war zone, um, you have to be very careful. And we sent people into war zones. When I was at NPR, we sent them into Iraq and we made sure that their fixers were well known and we never brandished weapons, and I'm certainly not advocating that. But in a war zone, you have to be able to say, don't screw with us. Um, and I think what's that? those lessons from the field have now come home to roost. Um, I think that my call, co- I, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm hearing that colleagues at the CBC send out reporters with very large producers who will stand on either side out of out of out of the shot out of the out of the out of the visual side of it uh just to make sure that no one comes close to either the camera person or the reporter and I think that's unfortunately going to have to be the way of the future but the, there's a there's a better way which is and this is going to cost news organizations some money that they're going to have to figure out a way in which algorithms can be used to filter out this nonsense from websites. And this is not a free speech issue, this is a safety issue. And I think that hiring people to work on the, the website and to make sure that inappropriate comments are being tracked and removed and blocked, and in some cases reported to the police, is the, the next step in, in this procedure. And I think that the fact that this hasn't been done yet is in part because, frankly, a lot of news organizations don't want to spend the money, and and so we are going to have to live with this until there is a sufficient uh, level of response from management in news organizations, print, broadcast, and especially online, that are willing to say enough is enough. We're not going to we're not going to put our our people in psychological or physical danger, and that's the challenge.
0: What, what what are the seeds that, that have grown into this this anger and 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 this you know threatening of violence and in some case actual violence here is, is uh, I mean we all already know that in many social media platforms and the people that, that advocate and, and 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 contribute to these things they don't hate the media they, they were told by by their heroes not to trust the media uh, unless you know these hand-picked group here that, that advocate for whatever that individual advocates for but the rest of us uh, I guess are are, are You know, while you use a number of different descriptors here, uh, but, but, you know, instead of agreeing or disagreeing on something like that, those who disagree with you or are perceived to have disagreed with you are an enemy, and, and, and violence seems to be the option. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about the January 6th hearings going on right now down in the United States, uh, and I watched that, as you did, as most of us did, of course, over the, the course of that uh, ugly day and reporters were putting their their lives on the line by trying to report you that's your job to be there and they want to be there and to give us the pictures and the stories but how many videographers did you see got pushed aside shoved mangled uh, and assaulted essentially that never used to happen the media was the media and and okay we're doing what we're doing here whether it's a freedom march or whether it's a riot or whether you know whatever it might be but the media seemed to get a free pass that's not happening anymore
3: well it it probably didn't happen back in the day when you and I were in short pants. But uh, it, it did happen a bit, and it was considered to be just part of the uh, experience of being a radio or a television reporter. What's made it more complicated now, in my opinion, is the ability of people to be anonymous. Um, and that has got, to, and there is a free speech component to this, so I don't disagree with that. But at the same time, we have to figure out a way, and. And news organizations have an affirmative obligation to make sure that their employees are working in a safe environment. If not, there'll be a lot of litigation that's going to go on at some point uh, from aggrieved employees who feel that their bosses didn't do enough to protect them. So it's in the self-interest of news organizations to to come together and figure out a way and work with police and governments to, to make sure that their employees are safe. Uh, right now they're working in very unsafe environments. Um, I'm I understand that a lot of especially younger journalists who may not have the thick skins that you and I have um, are finding this very tough and it's driving people out of the business and that's the last thing we want we want people like Tess Owens to go out there and to get the story and but to do it in a way that doesn't leave them, uh, shocked, appalled, and and in anguish. This is going to
0: be the challenge. What about the support mechanisms, though? I mean, those that have taken the you know the, this kind of abuse uh, and have had the courage to actually take it to the next level and and go to authorities and say, look, at, I'm re- I want to report this. Uh, report almost unanimously that that police don't seem to take it seriously. Uh, there don't seem to be those support mechanisms in place. Uh, You know, forget about deterrence, because that that ship's already sailed, if it's already happened to them. Uh, But they don't feel as if they're being protected.
3: I think there needs to be a meeting of the senior minds, both at the uh, government level, police level, and senior management level, to say, look, you are not doing your jobs uh, in enforcing the laws. The laws are there. Um, But the fact is, the police are under-resourced, and they feel that it's more difficult for them as well. Everybody's in a bit of a dilemma right now, and we have to figure a way out of this. And I think if we get together and think about these things and and talk openly, as uh, we did in Montreal back in the day, we talked to the, the police and said, look, we're getting hassled at a rise of nationalistic uh, tensions in Montreal back in the 70s. We need you guys to be there to make sure that we're not unsafe. And once we explain how we work, what the issues are, who we're confronting, how to handle this, the police became more amenable once they understood how we work, what the deadline pressures are, et cetera, et cetera. I think that we need to be more, we, you, <laughs> need to be more transparent about what goes into making a story come together and how the, how the Needs of and I'm going to use the big D word. Our democracy requires the existence of a of a of a media organization that is working in favor of the, our democratic values. And I think that we have to start talking about these things because there are huge principles involved right now, and and, and it's getting very dangerous out there.
0: You talked about the way things were back in in the early days, I guess I, yours and mine, as opposed to now. Uh, is, is social media the outlier here? Is that the the thing that's caused? Because it's it's given people first of all a platform, and it it allows these these hate mongers to fester and to spread this, and and it's 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 like a common forum for them to get together. That wasn't there before. You couldn't do that. That's right. And and I think what we
3: need now is to. Uh, relax our concerns a little bit about anonymity because it's the anonymous nature of the digital culture that is allowing for people to be stupid and crazy and we need to figure out a way in which you cannot post anything on the chorus website unless we know who you are and that will require people back in the newsroom doing research who is this person is this a real person in the same way that newspapers check when someone sends a letter to the editor, they don't just print them willy-nilly. They go and they they Google the person. Oh yeah, he he does, he is he does teach at the University of Toronto. He is he has legitimacy or she has legitimacy, but n- not to do that kind of checking is going to require a commitment of of nerve and resources on the part of media organizations.
0: Uh, which, as you say, is a diminishing number uh, almost on a daily basis these days, too, because, you know, the first thing they're going to say is, well, we don't have the resources to do that. Well, that's too bad because
3: there's something more at stake than the bottom line here. It's the safety of people who want to work in journalism.
0: Do we, I was going to say, maybe the word I wanted here was tolerance, but I'm not sure if that's even the right word here. Uh, Do we have that tolerance? Do we have that understanding uh, that we can allow for people that may have contrary opinions to quote-unquote report and be there in situations like that. It just seems as if the, the modus operandi of an awful lot of these groups is you don't write something that's favorable to us, so we don't even want you here. Yes, exactly. And I think that, that
3: we're seeing calls from certain corners here in Canada to push back against uh, the ability of news organizations to report freely and fairly. Um, I'm going to quote Mr. Polyev, who every time he's in a rally and he calls for the defunding of the CBC, the crowd erupts. Well I think that we have to take that seriously. um, Because there's a lot that the CBC does that can be criticized, I'm one of them. Uh, But there's a lot that the CBC does that is great on the ground, grassroots reporting. And we have to figure out a way in which. News organizations can be seen to be at the service of our our citizens and of the democracy. And that's the transition that needs to happen now, in my opinion.
0: And, and that's not a new idea. I mean, there's always going to be discussion and debate, I would think, Jeff, about oh, contrary points of view, uh, whether it's about politics, whether it's about social justice, whatever the case might be. Uh, but that debate's not happening anymore. They're, as, as we say, they're, they're skipping that el- that step of it and simply saying, oh, you're going to be punished because you don't agree with me. Exactly.
3: And, and And we have to figure out a way in which we can allow for free speech, for opinions with which we may disagree, but which, in fact, are essential to the functioning of a democracy. And I'm thinking about whistleblowers. How does someone post something anonymously that is of value to for people to know about but would be endangering in some way to the person who's leaving those comments and that's a that's to me that's a real concern I mean if we discover that uh somebody in high office is uh, doing something wrong and we want to get that word out how does that word get out without endangering? The person who's blowing that whistle, and so that's a, that is a, a, re- a legitimate concern. But at the same time, if someone wants to go online and denounce you and me uh, for for something we haven't done, that's going to be another kind of problem.
0: Well, uh, the, we're looking for regulation. I know that's something that makes some people just cringe every time they hear that, but I mean, there's got to be some some level of uh, respect and civility here, and I, I'd like to see us get back to that. Uh, Jeff, we're out of time on this one. I, I thank you so much for this. I always appreciate our conversations. Anytime, Bill. My pleasure. Take care. Jeffrey Dvorkin, of course, uh, a senior fellow with the Massey College and author of uh, Trusting the News in a Digital Age. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free